The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center. The summer seems to be in full swing here in New York, with festivals and events beginning to pop up all over the city, and something very special about this summer in cities across the world is that there is a wonderful abundance of Shakespeare performances happening, as this year marks the 400th anniversary of the famous Bard's death. Many of you listening probably studied Shakespeare in school or have seen your fair share of his works performed in the theatre. And I cannot think of a literary figure more widely studied and more loved in the world of theatre today than William Shakespeare. So with performances happening all around us in parks and theatres and halls, we here at the Guild thought it would be fun to spend some time on the podcast with operatic works that are connected with plays by Shakespeare. Composers and librettists have long been inspired by the drama, the characters, the poetry, the plot twists, and some of the most fantastic operatic works are settings of Shakespeare's plays. We know that Verdi loved Shakespeare. Three of his operas are settings of his plays, Otello, Macbeth, and Falstaff. We also know that he began working on an operatic version of King Lear, but then he discarded it saying that it didn't have the right ingredients for operatic drama and timing. The timeless tragedy of Romeo and Juliet has been turned into operas many times, perhaps the most popular version composed by Charles Gounod, which is actually coming up next season, though both Bellini and Zingarelli and several others also tried their hand at setting that story. The plays Hamlet, Macbeth, Much Ado About Nothing, Antony and Cleopatra, The Taming of the Shrew, and several others have all been turned into operas, and even Wagner tried his hand at setting a Shakespeare play. He set Measure for Measure in his early opera Das Liebesverbot. So we thought that we would sprinkle into the summer podcast lineup some episodes that focus on these operatic adaptations of Shakespeare. And so what better way to start that off than with the English 20th century composer Benjamin Britten and his striking operatic setting of A Midsummer Night's Dream. To dive into this topic, today's episode features an excerpt from the Talking About Opera archives with one of our Guild lecturers, Harlow Robinson. This is Harlow Robinson, talking to you about Benjamin Britten's opera, A Midsummer Night's Dream. The recorded excerpts you're hearing are taken from the Virgin Classics recording with the London Symphonia, conducted by Richard Hickox. Shakespeare called his five-act comedy A Midsummer Night's Dream, but leaves the exact time of the action somewhat unclear. In Act Four, Theseus, Duke of Athens, in whose environs the play is set, remarks that the first day of May has just dawned. In German folklore, the first night of May is known as Walpurgisnacht, the fearful night when the souls of the dead are released to Rome at will. Operophiles will remember the famous Walpurgisnacht ballet 
from Act V of Gounod's Faust. The most prominent 19th century German translation of A Midsummer Night's Dream is even entitled Walpurgis Nacht's Traum. And yet many other details in Shakespeare's play indicate that the action occurs around the time of the summer solstice. This date is known in the Christian calendar as St. John's Eve, June 24th. You will recall, perhaps, that Wagner's opera, Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, is also set on this day. Like Walpurgisnacht, St. John's Eve was a night when evil spirits were known to act with special vigor. Whatever the exact date, this much is clear. The main action of the play and opera unfolds in a night when the powers of the underworld are at their peak and mortals are especially vulnerable to their wiles. But Shakespeare's ghosts and fairies are more mischievous than dangerous, more entertaining than terrifying. For the most part, Britain's fairies are also benign. Shrewdly, Britain chose to use trebles, boy sopranos, to play the parts of the fairy retinue. The thin, high-pitched timbre of their voices, along with the square rhythm and simple stepwise movement of their main theme, gives them a quality of asexual innocence. Since fairies are creatures of folk culture, their music is intentionally reminiscent of English folk song. The fairies are also the first characters we hear and see in the opera, immediately after the forest music. In Shakespeare, they appear later only in Act Two. In a similar way, Britain makes ingenious use of vocal tessitura and style to emphasize the otherworldliness of the three principal fairy characters. The role of Oberon, king of the fairies, is written for a countertenor, a male alto singing falsetto. The sound of the countertenor voice is eerie, regal, androgynous, and unnatural, qualities perfectly suited for the monarch of the nether realm. In his last opera, Death in Venice, Britain writes the role of the mythical Apollo for a countertenor to similar effect. The tradition of countertenor singing was also particularly well-developed in English music and therefore well-suited to a setting of a Shakespearean text.
The role of Oberon's consort, the queen of the fairies, Titania, is given to a coloratura soprano who receives numerous florid and show-stopping passages. The vocal writing for the female mortal characters pales by comparison. The elaborate ornamentation in Titania's vocal part symbolizes her magnificence and supernatural powers. Both Oberon and Titania sing in highly chromatic lines that illustrate their devious, ambiguous, and unhuman natures. The third, and in many ways most important, of the fairy roles is that of Puck, a mischievous hobgoblin in Oberon's service. It's Puck who is chiefly responsible for disrupting the lives of the play's mortal characters through his application of magical herbs and other tricks. In order to set him apart, Britain makes the Cupid-like Puck an acrobat with a speaking role. This permits the insertion of some of Shakespeare's most famous lines. Lord, what fools these mortals be, in their original spoken form. As an acrobat, Puck also adds some welcome physical stage business. Puck is a quite different character from anyone else in the play, Britton said. He seems to me to be absolutely amoral and yet innocent. He doesn't sing but only speaks and tumbles about. In the opera's original production, Puck was played by a 15-year-old. Throughout his life, the openly homosexual Briton had a fondness, weakness even, for that brief and delicate phase of male adolescence when a boy was becoming an active sexual being. The special quality of the unstable male adolescent voice appealed to the composer both musically and emotionally. Through the forest have I gone, but Athenian found I none, on whose eyes I might approve this flower's force in stirring love. Night in silence. The fairy underworld of Shakespeare's play clearly fascinated Benjamin Britten, 
for he gives it special prominence in his operatic treatment. The fairies receive proportionately more stage time than they do in Shakespeare. In 1960, when he completed the score of A Midsummer Night's Dream, after seven months of intense work, Britton gave an interview to a London newspaper on the occasion of the opera's premiere at the Aldeborough Festival. Here, he discussed the spirit's role in the play. The fairies in my opera are very different from the innocent nothings that often appear in productions of Shakespeare. I have always been struck by a kind of sharpness in Shakespeare's fairies. Besides, they have some odd poetry to speak. The part about you spotted snakes with double tongue, for instance. The fairies are, after all, the guards to Titania, so they have in places martial music. Like the actual world, incidentally, the spirit world contains bad as well as good. A Midsummer Night's Dream was the only one of Britain's 12 operas whose libretto was prepared by the composer himself. Actually, the libretto was a collaboration between Britain and his longtime lover, partner, and artistic companion, the tenor, Peter Pears. By the time Britain came to write his dream, he was 46 years old and the world-renowned composer of nine operas, including Peter Grimes, Billy Budd, and The Turn of the Screw. He had also written a large body of music for orchestra, chorus, voice, chamber ensemble, and film. With the help and advice of Peter Pears and others, Britain had established the Aldeborough Festival and overseen its growth into one of the most important music festivals in the world. By late 1959, when he decided to write this new opera, Britain was already one of the most famous and admired composers of the century. Like Gloriana, written for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953, a Midsummer Night's Dream was composed for a specific occasion, the opening of the rebuilt Jubilee Hall at the Aldeborough Festival on June 11, 1960. Also like Gloriana, but unlike Peter Grimes' Billy Budd and the Turn of the Screw, Dream lacks the strong homoerotic implications that disturbed many of Britain's contemporaries. Dream does have something important in common with the turn of the screw, however, action unfolding on the two levels of natural and supernatural. Dream also deals at least tangentially with one of Britain's favorite themes, the corruption and failure of innocent love. Here, though, the topic receives comic rather than tragic treatment. I've always loved A Midsummer Night's Dream, Britain explained simply. As I get older, I find that I increasingly prefer the work either of the very young or of the very old. I always feel A Midsummer Night's Dream to be by a very young man, whatever Shakespeare's actual age when he wrote it. To fashion an opera in three acts of nearly identical length out of Shakespeare's five-act play, Britain and Paris used only about half of its more than 2,000 lines. As the composer rightly observed, to have done the complete A Midsummer Night's Dream would have produced an opera as long as The Ring. Some scenes and speeches were eliminated entirely, while others were cut and slightly rearranged. Sometimes lines given originally to one character are reassigned to another. Some speeches, especially those between the lovers, are combined into ensembles. 
very much aware of Shakespeare's literary status, Britain and Paris scrupulously avoided altering the text. Only a single line was invented. Many scholars and critics have commented that Britain's dream is the most faithful operatic setting of a Shakespearean play. Throughout their years together, both Britain and Paris had always shared a subtle and discriminating taste in prose and poetry. In trimming the play, Britain and Paris chose to discard most of Shakespeare's Act I, set in the court of Theseus in Athens. Instead, as I already have noted, the opera opens in the enchanted midsummer woods with the fairies. The roles of Theseus and Hippolyta are greatly reduced. They appear for the first time only in the opera's final scene, after an instrumental interlude that permits the action to move from the woods to Theseus's palace. The libretto even omits Theseus's famous speech comparing dreams to myths and literary fiction. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. Perhaps Britton felt that his operatic setting makes this point clearly enough. By reducing the role of Theseus, Britain and Paris alter the balance established by Shakespeare between the real world of Athens and the dream world of the forest. In the opera, the dream world dominates. The real world is all but invisible. Are the supernatural events that occur on stage only a dream dreamt by the mortals? Shakespeare leaves the answer to this question intentionally vague, but Britain affirms that fairies do indeed exist. Oberon, Titania, and Puck are the real powers here, not earthly monarchs like Theseus. Dream was designed to be performed in a hall with only 316 seats, so Britain scored it for a small semi-chamber size orchestra. So that Shakespeare's words would be clearly audible, he was very careful to use transparent, spare orchestration under the singers. The fairies are characterized musically by an impressive battery of percussion instruments, including triangles, cymbals, tambourine, gong, woodblocks, vibraphone, glockenspiel, xylophone, side drum, tenor drum, bass drum, timpani, and two bells, as well as two harps, harpsichord, and celesta. There's also a stage band playing sopranino recorders, small cymbals, and two woodblocks. This band plays the music with which the fairies entertain Bottom during his comic Dalliance with Titania. The opera's musical world has three levels, like the verbal world of Shakespeare's play. One for the Athenian lovers, one for the rustics, and one for the fairies. I've used a different kind of texture and orchestral color for each section, Britton explained. For the six rustics, all male voices, Britton writes in a heavily rhythmic recitative or parlando style that closely follows the contours of spoken English. Remember that these characters speak in prose in Shakespeare. At the same time, the Pyramus and Thisbe, opera within an opera, rehearsed and performed by the rustics, 
is permeated with slyly mocking references to the cliches of 19th century grand opera. One can hear both styles in the rustic's first entrance in Act One. for the mortal sounds pallid in comparison. Its blandness shows that he had little sympathy for or interest in the selfish and frivolous young lovers. They sing in monotonously repetitive quarter note lines derived from three chromatic phrases, often accompanied by muted brass. For the purposes of ensemble, the four lovers are cast as soprano, Helena, mezzo-soprano, Hermia, tenor, Lysander, and baritone, Demetrius. But none of the four singers has an individual musical style. Instead, they inhabit a common musical sphere, and a rather unimaginative and irritable one at that. Like their personalities, their music is virtually interchangeable. Here's the entrance of Lysander and Hermia in Act One. After the brief orchestral introduction, most of Act I belongs to the opera's fairy population. At their first entrance, Titania and Oberon join in an eerily ornate duet that explains their current marital strife. The combination of the timbre of Oberon's countertenor voice with the brilliant flourishes of Titania's coloratura produce a truly unearthly effect. Their duet begins on the same note and proceeds at first in octaves and unison. Thank you. 
After Titania leaves, Oberon summons Puck and instructs him to drop magic juice in her eyes. And ere I take this charm from off her sight, I'll make her render up her page to me, the fairy king vows. Puck flies off to obey his master's command. This leaves the stage free for Lysander and Hermia. They engage in an extended love scene. The course of true love never did run smooth. That climaxes in a fervent, if somewhat forced, pledge of eternal devotion. Here, Britain takes a speech by Hermia, my good Lysander, I swear to thee by Cupid's strongest bow, and turns it into a strenuous duet for her and Lysander. It becomes a vocal contest to show who loves more and reveals the egotism behind their self-consciously romantic attraction. Hermia and Lysander run off stage. After some more forest interlude music, Oberon appears, just in time to overhear the other set of Athenian lovers, Demetrius and Helena. Helena abases herself at Demetrius's feet in an abject profession of love that would leave present-day feminists fuming. The more you beat me, I will fawn on you, she sings. Use me but as your spaniel. Britain's music for Helena here has an ironic tongue-in-cheek quality. Her consecutive descending staccato runs illustrate her breathless desperation. <laughs> Puck now flies in with the magic flower Oberon had requested. 
in a highly chromatic and strange aria, full of opportunities for the countertenor to exhibit technique, Oberon instructs Puck to squeeze some of the flower's juice into the eyes of Demetrius, so that he might fall in love with the unwanted Helena. When Demetrius awakes from the drug, he'll love the first person he sees. So be sure, Oberon warns Puck, that Helena is nearby. Oberon and Puck disappear to carry out their magic. After another forest interlude, the six rustics appear to rehearse Pyramus and Thisbe. Their leader, Quince, assigns the parts. Following Shakespeare closely, Britain finds considerable humor in Bottom's gregarious good nature. A born ham, Bottom wants to play all the parts. The rustics are amused by the casting of the bellows mender flute as the heroine Thisbe. Nay faith, nay faith, protests flute. Let not me play a woman, let not me play a woman. I have a beard coming. Bottom then chimes in with falsetto, joking that he should play Thisbe. There's something charmingly adolescent in the comic discomfort the rustics feel upon hearing a man attempt to mimic a female singing voice. In Shakespeare's time, of course, female roles were acted by men. Flute's reluctance to play Thisbe illustrates the rustics' ignorance of theatrical convention, their inability to embrace the artifice demanded by the stage. They are laughably literal in their understanding of the theater. Instead of assuming that their audience will be experienced, sophisticated, and capable of suspending disbelief, the rustics explain everything in pedestrian detail. Even the wall that separates the doomed lovers and the moon that shines upon them are portrayed by actors 
lest there be any confusion. In the opera, the musical material heard when the rustics first appear in Act One accompanies them at every subsequent appearance. Another short interlude of forest music precedes the reappearance of Lysander and Hermia. They are still rapturously self-involved, but tired now. Before taking a nap, they sing a lovely duet, concluding on the word Amen, which merges with Hermia's slumber. Puck enters. He mistakes Lysander for Demetrius and squeezes magic juice in Lysander's eyes. Demetrius runs through, pursued by Helena, who stays behind alone. When she sees Lysander, Helena rouses him to find, to her bewilderment, that he is now suddenly, madly, in love with her. Stunned by his change of heart, Helena believes he is joking. Overcome, she runs off stage, pursued by Lysander. Hermia wakes to find her sweetheart gone. After a brief, frantic vocal outburst, she runs off to search for Lysander. Act one of the opera concludes with the reappearance of Titania and her suite. The fairy queen asks her attendants to sing her to sleep. Their lullaby is set to the same open-ended folk tune with which the fairies opened Act One, but now in retrograde form, ascending rather than descending. No sooner is Titania asleep before Oberon steals in. While pronouncing a spell, he squeezes magic juice in his queen's eyes. What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love take. Love and languish for his sake, wake when some vile thing is near. Wake when some vile thing is near. Act two has three large sections. The first belongs to the rustics as they continue to rehearse. The second belongs to the fairies and to Titania's instant infatuation with Bottom whom she sees, asshead and all, upon awakening from her drug-induced sleep. The last section returns us to the argumentative world of the four lovers. They castigate each other for the inappropriateness and fickleness of their romantic attractions, unaware that their feelings have been clumsily manipulated by supernatural powers. One of the most vividly realized dramatic and musical episodes in Act Two is Bottom's appearance to his fellow rustics after he's been given an ass's head by Puck. Britain concludes their astonished reaction in a richly harmonized quintet that climaxes on the weighty and double-edged line. Thou art translated. As for Titania, she responds to Bottom upon awakening from her drugged sleep by bursting into an adoring and florid aria.
Britain's vocal and instrumental setting of the extended courting scene between Titania and Bottom contains what is probably the most convincing love music in the entire opera. This unlikely couple is, at least for this brief episode, the happiest pairing we see. Shakespeare emphasizes the absurd and ironic humor of the situation, but Britain treats the relationship between Bottom and Titania with tenderness and compassion, not ridicule. In any case, the musical exchanges that follow between Demetrius and Hermia, Lysander and Helena, and Demetrius and Helena seem by comparison rancorous and petty. Trying to correct Puck's mistake, Oberon has drugged Demetrius so that he will return Helena's love. But now Lysander, drugged earlier instead of Demetrius, is also in love with Helena. Their simultaneous wooing leaves the previously spurned Helena in a state of shock. In a touching aria about female friendship, she accuses Hermia of conspiring with the two men to mock her. An extended ensemble of the four lovers follow. They exit all at cross purposes and angry with each other. To the rescue comes Oberon. He commands Puck to help him gather all four lovers in one spot where they can be put to sleep and drugged yet again so that they might awake in romantic concord. Act two ends with a soothing lullaby sung by the fairies in harmonious intervals of thirds, concluding with some of Shakespeare's most famous lines. Jack shall have Jill, naught shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well. Act three has two scenes. 
The first takes place in the woods and resolves the romantic intrigue, producing three happy couples, Oberon and Titania, Demetrius and Helena, and Lysander and Hermia. Oberon and Titania celebrate their reconciliation with a stately dance that merges with the sounds of the forest, especially the trilling of the lark, as imitated by a brilliant piece of writing for solo piccolo. Towards the end of this orchestral interlude, the distant sound of two horns is heard, announcing the impending arrival of Theseus and Hippolyta. The four lovers now awake from their magic sleep and immediately pair off. They join in a quartet of mutual congratulation at their good fortune and good taste. Like the earlier I Swear duet between Lysander and Hermia, this quartet also possesses the flavor of a contest. The vocal writing marches straight upward in a sequence of scales that rise stepwise at their base. The ironically parallel scene of Bottom's Awakening, which we heard earlier, follows. It's worth noting that of all the mortal characters in the play and opera, only the lowly Bottom actually sees a fairy. Even after awakening, he is aware of what has happened to him, unlike the four silly aristocratic lovers. After some wandering about, Bottom and his fellow rustics find each other and prepare to perform their play for Theseus and the courtiers. Britain provides a march for brass for the transformation scene to the palace of Theseus. Theseus first decrees that he will bless the two marriages. He has reversed his earlier decision that Hermia must marry Demetrius, as her father commanded. At last, the time has come for entertainment. The rustics are summoned to perform Pyramus and Thisbe. Just as Shakespeare intended in this play within the play to skewer the theatrical cliches of his era, so too did Britain undertake to produce a parody of overblown operatic conventions in the mini opera he makes out of Pyramus and Thisbe. Apparently, Britain and Pears even had a very specific target in mind. 
Zeffirelli's hugely successful production of Donizetti's opera, Lucia de Lammermoor. Lucia, one of the most romantically overwrought and easily ridiculed of bel canto operas, had been staged at Covent Garden in February 1959 with Joan Sutherland in the title role. Britton filled his Pyramus and Thisbe with not-so-subtle musical and dramatic references to Lucia and the conventions of the bel canto style. He displays his tongue-in-cheek attitude by switching pretentiously from English to Italian directions in the score. In the original staging at Aldeborough, Peter Pears was cast in the drag role of Thisbe. Witnesses said Pears turned the role into a really wicked imitation of Joan Sutherland, both in appearance and vocal mannerisms. Britton heightens the humor of the rustic's performance by punctuating it with imaginatively scored sarcastic outbursts from the audience. Theseus, Hippolyta, Lysander, Hermia, Demetrius, and Helena repeatedly interrupt the opera to comment both on the bad acting and the predictable storyline. After the prologue, Britton writes a marvelous patter ensemble for the three couples. Although the resulting sextet sounds like spontaneous and improvised chatter, in fact, each note is precisely indicated. In a note to the score, Britton advises that this recitative ensemble is not to be sung in strict time. Each character sings his line at the natural speed of diction, repeating it until silenced by Theseus's line, who's next? opera lasts about 17 minutes and has 14 small numbers. Britain and Paris cut hardly any lines from Shakespeare's Pyramus and Thisbe, so enamored were they of its musical and satirical potential. All the numbers are so cleverly done that it's hard to say which are most successful. The wordy and overly informative prologue reveals the actor's laughable paucity of imagination. A gloomy Lento Lamentoso, sung by the wall, glumly played by Snout, the tinker, is a deliciously nasty send-up 
of the contemporary vocal style known as Sprechstimme or Sprechgesang, literally speech song. This style was closely identified with Arnold Schoenberg, notably in his Pierrot Lunaire. Britain had never found Schoenberg's severely intellectual aesthetic congenial. Predictable arpeggios on the harp and flute announce Thisbe's entrance. Since the role of Thisbe is being played by a man whose name is Flute, Britain seems to be making a Shakespearean pun in his choice of instrumentation. Here, the humor comes from the contrast between the graceful bel canto style accompaniment and Thisbe's crude off-key singing. It's a bit like an elephant trying to dance a classical pas de deux. Notice, too, how badly the natural stresses of the lines fit the music. Poor John Sutherland. Britain's writing for the characters the moon and the lion is no less cleverly overdone. Initially timid the lion, played by the joiner snug, comes into his own in a self-consciously dissonant presto feroce as he chases Thisbe off stage. When Pyramus, remember this is bottom, enters and finds his lover's bloody veil, 
he launches into a suicide and death aria that just refuses to die. Thisbe's farewell to life is no less prolonged and vocally histrionic. The drama over, Bottom asks Theseus to choose between seeing the epilogue or hearing a Bergomasque dance. No epilogue, I pray you, for your play needs no excuse, replies Theseus ironically. So the rustics dance clumsily as the orchestra plays a Bergomasque, a kind of dance associated with the Italian city of Bergamo. As the dance ends, the clock strikes midnight. Lovers to bed, tis almost fairy time, warns Theseus. The mortals leave the stage and the fairies reappear. Oberon and Titania join their retinue in a benediction chorus, vowing to bless the new marriages that are about to take place.
The fairies exit to carry out their work, leaving Puck alone on stage to address the audience. If we are unhappy with what we've seen, he advises us, we should consider it all nothing more than a dream. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. That the opera ends with spoken words, not singing, seems a tribute to Shakespeare's artistry. Perhaps it's even a composer's admission of helplessness in the face of such profound verbal music. If we shadows have offended, think about this and all is mended. That you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. So what is Britain trying to tell us in what is one of the greatest of all Shakespearean operas? Many things, of course, but one message prevails. Operas are no more imagined and no less real than our dreams. Thank you so much for listening to episode 35 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. We hope you enjoyed being whisked away with Benjamin Britten's magical musical language. It really is a fantastic score. And I actually remember listening to an interview with renowned Shakespearean actor Patrick Stewart. Yes, also known for his portrayal as Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek. And Patrick Stewart described how he listens to Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream and wishes that he was a singer, specifically a countertenor, so that he could experience performing the work in that medium because the music is just so beautiful and so expressive. As mentioned in the intro, there are all kinds of celebrations and festivals and performances of Shakespeare happening in cities around the world, so definitely check out what's happening in your local community, and maybe you can find some operatic settings of Shakespeare's plays in summer music festival lineups. That's all for today, but we will be back with you next week, so until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.